Well, it's true, my family is here, my mom and my brothers, and it's true, they can tell you stories about me. See? It's true, they can tell you stories about me, but just so you know, they lie a lot. So, anything they say that just doesn't seem to fit with my character, probably untrue. Most of their stories are from my wayward youth, and so they're a little spicier than maybe the stories would be about me now. At least I hope so. Um, And also, I can tell stories about them, so. And they're going home. (laughs) And I can tell them from up here. (laughs) Let's just pray uh, before we look into 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Father God, we give you thanks for your word. We thank you for this journey that you have taken us through as a church. Um, through 1 Corinthians, uh, alongside the Apostle Paul as he writes uh, to this church in Corinth, which, like so many churches, uh, is just dealing with confusion and disunity and young Christians coming out of a pagan culture trying to figure out how to make their faith work with what they learned before and what they know now. And that's what we're doing, Lord. We're trying to figure out how to make our faith work uh, with what we learned from the world and what we know now. Uh, from your scripture. And so just bless our time here together and pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our minds and our thoughts uh, from your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, uh, of course, my mom would have to come uh, during the series sermon when I have to talk about sex. Kind of awkward. Um, but whatever, we'll soldier on. As, I, as we've said before, we don't skip over Scripture just because it's convenient. We have to keep going. And uh, so today we're looking at marriage. And Paul is trying to, you remember last week, um, speaking to the church in Corinth, uh, all the trouble they were getting in this big metropolis city. It's a port city full of sailors. has the biggest temple to Aphrodite uh, in the Greek Empire, Roman Empire. And all of the sort of illegitimate physical activity that you can imagine going on around that, and I'm glad that our teens are in right now because this is about marriage and this is about appropriate relationships with each other, and so it's really good that they're here to listen. And uh, so you can imagine in this big city, this church that's planted there by Paul, there's all these pagan influences on it, and Paul has laid the foundation stones, and we've been going through them. He started out talking about uh, the grace that the church is, has every rich, it's enriched by the grace of God. He's poured out everything that they need in knowledge and gifts and, and teaching. And so the enrichment of the church in grace, he talked about the power that the church has in the gospel, that the gospel empowers the church to actually affect change. It, affects, it empowers the church, it affects our lives. Because of Christ on the cross, we can actually affect change. And then he, dealed, he, he started to lay, relay foundation stones that the church had lost. They had become disunified and argumentative and broken into camps. And he talked about unity in God and how God is big enough. As, as you sort of walk with God, you learn that there are thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people walking with God. And they're all unified in God even though some like country and some like rap and some like hymns and some like organs and some like pianos and some like drums and and some think this about baptism and some think that about baptism and some think this about communion and some think that. And there's a whole... We we don't all have to be in perfect unity with each other, but we can all be in unity with God and walking with God. And so we talked about that. We talked about the arrogance of 
And the humility that was required, we had to relay that foundation stone because the church was proud of these illegitimate relationships that were going on. People sleeping with the wrong people, and they were actually boasting about it. And Paul said, you should be ashamed, you should be humble. So we talked about humility and, uh, and purity, personal purity. And the Corinthian church, just to remind you, last week specifically, we were talking about how they had turned the dial on liberty way up. They remembered that Paul had taught them they were free from the, wall, free from the law. And, and that's true. Paul did teach them they were free from the law. And they loved that teaching. That's the only sermon I think they remembered, or Paul thinks they remembered, because they turned liberty way up, and they were using Christian liberty to sin and to do anything they wanted to do and bring shame upon themselves and upon God. And Paul said, you remember last, last week in chapter 6, five times he says in that chapter, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know? And he was talking about the fact that you know that, like, you can turn the dial up on liberty, but don't you know all these other dials? You know, don't you know that your body is a temple? Don't you know that you can't become one flesh with a prostitute? Don't you know that you're filled with the Holy Spirit and that your body belongs to Christ? Don't you know all these other truths? Yes, it's true that you are free from the law, but it's also true that you're free from the law to do good works, not to sin. And so that was where we were at. And so that he was dealing in the negative sense, Paul was dealing in the negative sense of the impurity of the church and reminding these people of the purity that they should have and reminding them that they should know what their liberty is to be used for. So then continuing on now in chapter 7, a uh, quick review there. In chapter 7, the tone of Paul changes here, which is good, because like, he's just been hammering away at the Corinthian church and us, uh, in, appropriately, uh, in terms of all these areas where they were proud, and they were disunified, and they weren't humble, and they were impure, and all these things. And now his tone changes, and you see in chapter 7 where he now begins to answer questions that the church had asked him. That they had written a letter to him, and they had asked him certain questions, and now he was writing in response to answer these questions. And now Paul wants to be uh, instructional, and he wants to encourage, and I want to make sure that I follow that tone with Paul, that this is not a sermon to rebuke, it's not to condemn, it's not to do any of that. It's, It's to lay a foundation, and Paul wants to relay the foundation. And I have up here... Uh, the, the word covenant uh, for this foundation stone because we're going to be talking about marriage. And you can't really understand marriage without understanding covenant. And this is where the church at Corinth uh, had gone wrong. Uh, they, had, they had misunderstood covenant, misunderstood covenant relationships and how they work. And so when they wrote to Paul, this struggling church, this urban church with pagan influences and all their former practices, they were basically saying, you know, what do we do about marriage? What do we do about food offered at, all, at idols? What do we do about circumcision? What do we do about uh, the spiritual gifts? Like, how do we, like, what, like, tell, like, explain all this again to us, Paul, because we're losing it. And so they're on the section of marriage here, and they're saying, what about marriage? Like, what, what do I do? Like, are we supposed to be celibate now that we become Christians? Or what if I became a Christian, but my husband or my wife didn't become a Christian? So I'm a Christian married to a non-Christian. Is that okay? Should we do that? Should we separate? What if my husband wants to stay with me, or they want to separate, or all these different questions, and we're going to actually deal with eight different scenarios in this sermon. So I'm going to get to the scenarios relatively quickly, because it's really practical teaching that Paul is doing here. And so we're looking at marriage and this practical teaching to this church that's just basically asking these questions about what is going on in marriage, in a Christian marriage, and how does it work in all these different situations. 
And so there's these messy family dynamics taking place. There's these complicated family dynamics. And we don't know anything about that, right? We don't know anything about complicated family dynamics in our church at all. But there's these complicated family dynamics taking place. And the Corinthians want to know how to sort them out, right? They just want to know. So that's, that's what we want to know. And it all starts with understanding covenant. That's why I put covenant up here as the foundation. You can't really talk about marriage unless you have a basic understanding of covenantal relationships and what God wants. And, and covenantal relationships, I'm going to use Deuteronomy 29.1. There's lots of places you could go. But I'm just going to pull some scripture here out of Deuteronomy 29. And this is the end of Moses' life. And it's one of the last things that he's telling the people of Israel. So it's really important because he's telling them this is what they need to do. And he's giving them the words of the Lord. And he says, these are the words of the covenant that the Lord commanded Moses to make with the people of Israel in the land of Moab, besides the covenant that he had made with them at Horab. So Moses is saying, here's a covenant relationship that you have with God. And just skipping further down, he says, Therefore keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. I'm in verse 10, if you're following along. He says, You are standing today, all of you, before the Lord your God, the heads of your tribes, your elders, your officers, all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the sojourner who is in your camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water, so that you may enter into the sworn covenant of the Lord your God, with the Lord, which the Lord your God is making with you today, that he may establish you today as his people, and that he may be your God as he promised. And so this idea of covenant, what I want you to notice here in this idea of covenant is that it's a language, the language of covenant, it's a relationship that modern society doesn't really get. Like when you say covenant even, it's kind of like an old word, right? Like why do we use this old word covenant? Why do we say covenant? Because it's an old idea. If you grew up in North America or you were educated in North America or you grew up in the last however many you know, decades in North America, this is a, a unique thing to you. It's a weird thing because it's this blend of personal language, of love and intimacy, and also legal, legal language. You notice that it says very personally that it is the Lord your God, and I want to make you my people, right? When you're talking about and you say, oh, my Isaac, when I say, oh, well, you know, my Isaac did something the other day, you know who I'm talking about, right? You're talking, talking about my Isaac, right? I talk about my wife. It's, it's an intimate relationship. You know, my Johnny or, or my David did this, or, you know, I saw, I saw my Peter the other day. And so you're, it's an intimate type of relationship. It's very ownership, loving relationship. But at the same time, the language that's in covenant as well is very legal. In the presence of all these people, and he listed all the people that they're in the presence of, and he says that he's this sworn covenant with the Lord, that it will be established, and that these things that he promised may come about. So there's this legal language as well in a covenant. So a covenant is this unique blend of both personal and intimate and legal. And so you end up with a relationship that is not, it's not merely personal. It's made stronger and it's given a backbone and it's got some steel in it because there's this legal component to it. But it's also not a relationship that's strictly legal. And there's, it's more than legal because it's a legal relationship that's filled with this intimacy and love. And that's a covenant. A covenant is something that we don't really think about in modern culture today. You don't think about entering into a covenant. And not every relationship is a covenant, right? Like, I mean... I go to the sports store, I go to the outdoor store, and, you know, I buy my minnows and fishing line there and things like that, and the owner of the store knows me, and I know the owner of the store, and we have a relationship, but 
I'm only in that relationship as long as the minnows and the fishing line and the shotgun shells are a good price. Because if another store opens up, you know, and they're selling bolt-action 38s cheaper, then I'm going to go down to that store and I'm going to get my fishing line and my fishing rods and my minnows there, right? It's a commercial relationship. I only put into it what I can get out of it, and they're only in the relationship with me to get out of me what they can get out of me. It's a commercial relationship. That's the way we think of most things. So there's commercial relationships and covenant relationships But what we're talking about here in terms of marriage is sort of one of the last places that covenant relationships really exist in our modern culture. And even that is getting chipped away at because covenant is such a weird idea in modern culture. But we have to understand the difference between a covenant relationship and a commercial relationship. A commercial relationship says, I will do all that I am supposed to do for you up to and in as much as you do everything you're supposed to do for me. And when you stop doing what you're supposed to do for me, then I'll stop doing what I'm supposed to do for you. That's a commercial relationship. But a covenant relationship says, or another way of putting it, says, I will do everything I'm supposed to do for you, even if you don't do it for me. Or a covenant relationship says, I am more concerned with my duty arising out of my relationship with you And arising out of my love for you, I'm more concerned with my duty to this relationship than I am concerned with my rights to my own personal satisfaction. That's a covenant relationship. And that's the relationship that God has with us. And we could spend a lot of time on that, but I don't have time. But you have to understand marriage within the difference between a commercial relationship and a covenant relationship. Commercial relationships say, this is what I'm putting in, and I get out what I get out. And as soon as I stop getting it out, then I'm gone. Covenant says... Because I'm in this relationship with you and I have this relationship with you, I will do my duty to the covenant. And so that is strange to us, but it's the only way we can understand marriage. It's the only way we can understand what Paul is talking about here. This covenant relationship plays out practically in the form of mutual submission in Christian marriages. So Paul starts out referring to a question of the Corinthian church that asked whether it was good for a man to be celibate or apart from a woman, not to touch a woman, which means you know, not to have relations with a woman. And Paul said, that is good. It is good if you could have that gift of being single, then it's good for you to remain single. And we're going to talk about that next week. We're going to talk about the gift of singleness. Paul says that is good, but there's another good, because not everybody has that gift, he says in verse 7 of, ch- of chapter 7. He says everybody has his own gift. Other people have another gift from God, which is a covenantal marriage. And so then he paints a picture of covenantal marriage. And the first point that I want to make in this picture of covenantal marriage is that the church or that the covenantal physical intimacy is meant for covenant and not for commercial relationships. That we are to be intimate, male and female together, in covenant relationships, not commercial relationships that our most personal and sacrificial physical relationship is to take place inside the bounds of our most profound covenantal relationship, which is marriage. You can't take something like physical intimacy and put it in a commercial relationship, or it just breaks. It doesn't work. If it becomes, I'm only in this until I get what I want out of you, and you get what you want out of me, and as soon as it stops, then that relationship is over. That is not the place for physical intimacy. So the first place that Paul puts it is in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 to 2. He says, it is good for a man not to be with a woman if you have that gift. He's quoting the thing that they asked him in, the, in, the, in, the, in, his, in their letter there. He's saying, quote, that you asked me, is it good? And he's saying, yes, it is good. But because of the temptations to immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. That there is this covenant relationship where physical intimacy is meant to be. 
Very simple first picture of covenant marriage. That all of this stuff we talked about in chapter 6, the temple and you're with different family members and all the stuff that was going on. No. One man, one woman together in a covenantal relationship. And that that relationship is exclusive to one another for all the reasons that Paul outlined in chapter 6 and we're not going to get into. Right? Don't you know about your body? Don't you know it's a temple? Don't you know that it's united to Christ? All these reasons that Paul lays out as to why this is an exclusive relationship within the bounds of marriage, within the bounds of a covenantal relationship. And any other clever sort of legal or casual relationship uh, that, that we come up with uh, in modern society is not what God intended for marriage. Right? All the different relationships that we hear about, friends with benefits and uh, you know, people get, having different you know, timelines on their marriage and all the different stuff that you hear of out there that's crazy, none of that is what God intended for marriage. And then also that marriage, this covenantal thing is, is established in mutual submission. And this is the covenantal point that Paul is making here, is that within covenant, the husband and the wife submit mutually to each other. And I apologize for going over this section a little fast because what I really want to get to is down below when it talks about the exceptions and the complexities to the rule. So Paul is at first painting the picture of the covenant marriage, that it's exclusive, that physical intimacy is is constrained to one man and one woman within the bounds of marriage, and that it's mutually submissive, uh, that physical intimacy is shared. And I'm going to spend a little bit of time here because it's every man's favorite verse. 1 Corinthians 7, 3 to 5. The husband should, not, should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You can't, you can't just go over those verses and not deal with them, right? So... <laughs> So we've got to pause here just for a minute in my, in my speed through this thing on marriage up front. And we're going to pause here for a minute. Paul basically goes on to explain how this exclusivity in the covenant relationship works. How it's to play out in the covenant relationship. The mutual submission of one to another that happens in a covenant relationship. How the husband and the wife mutually submit to each other for the purpose of this intimacy. And notice that the verb that Paul uses is give, not take. <laughs> The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife to the husband. It's not take your conjugal rights. So focus on that verb when you're thinking about this, that this is given to each other. This is a sacrifice. This is an offering. This is a gift that you are giving to your spouse. But if I'm reading this right, and I'm pretty sure that I am, uh, Paul's instructions are here when you read this, is that husbands and wives should never deprive each other of physical intimacy. Except in the case where it's actually become a distraction to prayer. And so when you're so distracted by physical intimacy that you're not praying, Paul says, by mutual agreement, you can separate and pray for a while. But then if you keep reading, he says, for a limited time, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you. So I think I'm reading that right. Paul's basically saying, don't ever deprive each other of physical intimacy unless it's a distraction from prayer. Then you should get together in prayer for a little while, but then get right back together again. Like I said, my favorite verse. (laughs) And all of this is spiritual warfare. He follows up to say that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So this is spiritual warfare, guys. I mean, take it seriously. And, uh, And that it is sounds a little bit funny when you read it that way, but it is what Paul is saying. That this that like I said, like Paul is trying to be encouraging to married couples here. He's trying to say, look, don't deprive yourself of this. 
This is the covenantal relationship. This is where it's meant to be. This is important, that you give yourselves to each other in this way so that, literally, Satan does not get a foothold so that you may not be tempted because of your lack of self-control. And so the marriage covenantal relationship that Paul is, is tapping into, and that's why I laid it as a foundation and sort of went back to it, is that Paul is trying to lay his advice to the church of Corinth, not just on ideas or thoughts that he had that were a good idea, but he's saying this is the way God intended it. That this is the picture of marriage that God has for us. Just as we would get into in Ephesians chapter 5, it's a relationship that God expects to be, this mutual submission is a relationship that's expected to be reflected in, in the church. And that in marriages, it looks like Christ in the church. That husbands are to lay down their lives for their, their, their wives. And that wives are to respect their husbands. Just as we have this relationship with Christ and just as we have this relationship with God, that's how our marriages with each other are to be. Our self-sacrificial and self-giving and self-submitting to each other. And so marriage, first of all, covenantal marriage is the right place for intimacy. Now, what are the complications to this rules? This is the, what the church at Corinth was asking is, okay, so I understand, Paul, you've painted the picture of the best scenario. One husband, one wife, not depriving each other, unity, mutual submission, you know, uh, taking time for prayer, and then right back to mutual submission and, uh, you know, giving of yourselves to one another. But that's not what we're writing to you about, Paul. We're writing to you about the complications to the rule. And like any church, you can imagine Corinth had these complicated relationships, and, and they're asking about many complicated situations about marriage that has come up. You know, what if you become a Christian after you're married? Or what if you're still married? Or what if your spouse is not a Christian? Or what if somebody wants to leave? Or what if somebody won't stay? And what if they will stay? Uh, you know, what do we do? What about kids? All these questions. And so then, you know, we have, I have eight scenarios that I want to run through. And... Uh, the first one is, what if you're single but really want to get married? Right? There's an obvious one. What if you want to get married and you become a Christian? Is marriage okay? So the first thing is 1 Corinthians 7, 8, and 9. And Paul says, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so Paul is saying here the same thing that he said before. It's good to be single. But being single isn't for everyone. Right? And Paul has a specific instance here in the church in Corinth where he's emphasizing singleness to them because of the uniqueness of their situation, which we'll get into next week. Uh, but he's saying it's good to remain single, but not everybody has the gift of being single. And so he says it's far better that people should find a partner that they can covenant with and marry in that covenant relationship to them and than to live in all the different shameful and complicated ways that having no outlet for their passion creates. Paul says, if you can't be single, if you don't have the gift of singleness, then by all means get married. And we should celebrate marriages because of the fact that they are covenant relationships that God desires, that display the relationship of Christ in the church, and we have mutual submission to one another, and all those different reasons. We celebrate marriages, if for no other reason than it's doing the right thing, is what Paul's saying here. It's better to be married than to get involved in all this other stuff that happens outside of marriage. And it's what God intended for us. But what if you are married and have separated? So 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 11. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, so this is a situation where you're separated, you haven't remarried, there hasn't been anything going on that would 
uh, complicate the marriage otherwise. It's just you can't live together or something. And, uh, and so you're separated. Then Paul says, if, if you, can, you should be reconciled if you can be. Right? Try and reconcile with your husband or try and reconcile with your wife. Don't divorce. That, you know, you might have gone through a rough patch. You might have been separated for however long. Paul is saying it's better to recommit to that covenantal relationship than to separate or to divorce. Just re-engage, re-reconcile. That's the power that we have in the gospel. We have the power to change. We have the power to forgive. We have the power to submit. We have the power to love. And so Paul says in this situation, if you're married and you've separated, then be reconciled and don't divorce. If at all possible, commit to your original covenant. Okay, what about a third option? What if the person is an unbeliever, or I become a Christian, but my spouse doesn't become a Christian? So the Corinthians were asking, it's like, well, I'm a Christian now. I belong to Christ, and how can I be yoked with this unchristian person? They don't accept Christ, but I do, and so I'm a different person, and you know, I'm free from the law, and I'm a new creation, so maybe my marriage isn't even valid anymore. And Paul says, no. If, if your spouse is an unbeliever... He says, to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. So Paul says the same thing here. He says, if they honor the covenant relationship of marriage and they want to remain, then remain with them in the covenant that you have with them. Right? And this is important to understand. We're a little bit different than the Catholic Church in this sense, in the fact that Protestant churches would say that would believe, by and large, that marriage is not a church institution. God gave marriage to humans in the Garden of Eden. It's a human institution, that he intends humans to be married in these covenant relationships. It's not strictly a Christian relationship. And so there's no disqualification of the marriage just because one's a Christian or becomes a Christian and the other isn't. And it's not not a marriage because it's legal and not done in a church. Marriage is meant for people. And Paul is saying here that if your unbelieving husband or your unbelieving wife is still committed to the covenant, then keep covenant with them. Don't break covenant. And that's why I had to cover covenant, because you're going to see that a lot of these things keep revolving around the idea of covenant and not breaking covenant. If they're willing to remain in the covenant with you, then stay in the covenant. Okay, fourth thing, okay. What if the other person will not stay in covenant with you? They've abandoned the covenant. Okay, so this is 1 Corinthians 7.15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or bound. There's another word there, could translate. God has called you to peace. Okay, so here's another situation. I'm in a situation, believer or unbeliever, whatever, and the other person separates and they won't re-engage. They don't want to stay in the covenant with you. They simply break the covenant by abandoning it, and they won't get counseling, they won't get reconciled, they don't want to meet with you, they don't want to work it out, they've moved away, they don't want anything to do with this covenant anymore. You can't stay in covenant with someone who won't keep covenant with you. Like You can't force it upon them. And so Paul is saying here, if they separate, then let them go. And in that case, you're not enslaved. You're not bound. You can remarry. God has called you to peace. Okay, so Paul is saying if the other person will not keep covenant with you, then you are free and not enslaved. You're no longer bound by that covenant. You're free to remarry. Okay, so another one. I told you there's eight. 
What if you are on your second or third marriage? Now, Paul doesn't deal with this one explicitly. So this is now us working with Paul and the Holy Spirit and the Scripture to work out, what, because he doesn't spell this one out, but what is the thrust of what he's saying here? What if you're on your second or third marriage? Right? What, what can you do if you can't go back? Right? So you become a Christian, you read this, you're convicted, you go, oh man, I'm on my, you know, I've already remarried or I'm on my second marriage or third marriage or whatever. I can't go back. I can't go back and reconcile like he said. And like it just, it's now it's getting even more complicated, right? And this is where, this is where, you know, for me personally, this is where, you know, my heart really goes out to really understand what do you do when you can't go back and fix it? But we're all really in the same boat with a lot of our sin. We can't go back and redo stuff we did. You know, we can't go back and fix the sin that we did years ago. We're all in the same boat. But here, to try to work through marriage and work through what Paul is saying and honor the covenant and honor God's heart for this, what do we do? Well, for me, what I'm pulling out of this, I think we need to do, like we deal with any other sin, is we need to reflect on the nature of those previous marriages and how the covenant got broken. Was there adultery? Were you abandoned? Did you abandon did you walk out? Did you break the covenant? Like you need to sit down as Christians who, who come into a realization of this as God moves us along in our understanding of our faith and, and how we are to act as Christians and be as a people and how he wants our heart to be turned towards him. We need to sit down and do serious thinking about this and say, okay, what happened in those other covenants? What was my role in it? What, what did I do? And having reflected on that, remember that nothing disqualifies us from the love of God. And God, excuse me, God does not desire the law to be a burden that's unable to be lifted. You remember when Paul is talking to the Pharisees, Paul, Jesus, when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees in Luke chapter 11, and he goes on that bit of a rant on them for a while, and he talks about how they are building up burdens on people that they're not willing to lift themselves. And I think this is one of them. Just remember that nothing disqualifies us from the love of God. And God does not desire the law to be a burden that's unable to be lifted. So as we are in that situation and you're reflecting on a marriage that's in the past and what your role was in it, you confess your covenant breaking if you broke covenant in the past. Any part you had to play in it. And you forgive the person that broke covenant with you or you ask forgiveness for breaking covenant with them or your role that you played in breaking covenant from those partners in your past if it's possible. And then what you do is you start doing things right in the marriage that you have with a focus on keeping covenant and focusing on your duties and not your rights. Because usually what happens when covenant breaks is it becomes a commercial relationship. Usually those covenant-breaking things have happened because we focused on our rights rather than our duties. We haven't been doing what Paul said in, chapter, or in verses 1 to 5, where we've been mutually submitting to each other and loving each other and giving each other uh, what we needed at the time that it was needed. Instead, it's become a commercial relationship where we basically said in our relationship, I'm in this relationship as long as I'm getting what I need out of it, and as soon as I'm not getting what I need out of it, I'm moving on. And when a covenantal relationship becomes a commercial relationship, it breaks. And so you need to, if you're in this situation where you cannot go back, you cannot reconcile, you're already remarried or the person is gone or whatever, you need to just reflect on that situation. Ask forgiveness for your role in it. And then confess and focus 
on the marriage that you have now and keeping covenant in the marriage that you have now. Focus on your duties and not your rights. Focus on keeping covenant as God would have you do. But remember that nothing disqualifies us from God's love and that nothing is meant to be a burden that we're unable to lift. Okay, fifth thing. (laughs) What if you're in the middle of a separation or divorce right now? So what's that situation? Maybe you're separated now or maybe you're divorced right now then you have to ask yourself what Paul asked earlier. Is reconciliation possible? If it's possible, then reconcile. What is it about? Is it, it's, examine yourself and your role in it. Is it you breaking covenant? Is it them breaking covenant? Are, have you put them in a position where they feel like they have to break covenant? If you're separated right now, or you're divorced right now, just examine your role in it. Paul makes it clear that the question for Christians here is whether their partners are willing to stay or not. If your partner is willing to reconcile, if your partner is even to, willing to attempt reconciliation, if there is a hope to keep the covenant bound, then I think the text here is pretty clear. It's our duty as a Christian to be covenant keepers. That's what God calls us to be. That's what he is. God is a covenant keeper, and he calls his people to be covenant keepers. And so if we've entered into a covenant, it's our duty to, covenant, to keep that covenant. And so if you've gotten into a pattern of denying your duty and claiming your rights, or if you are like the other Corinthians in chapter 6 and you've got the liberty dial turned way up, and you've got the covenant-keeping dial turned way down, and you've got your rights dial turned way up, and you've got your duty dial turned way down, then you've got to adjust the dials and say, yeah, I've got liberty. Yeah, I've got liberty, but I also have obligations. And so you've got to adjust the dials and focus on covenant keeping to be a covenant keeper, keeper the way your God is a covenant keeper. Seventh item. What if you're in a marriage now, but it's abusive? Well, that's a covenant breaker. Get safe, get help. Because abuse is covenant breaking. That one's simple. Don't have to go more into that other than to say, get help. Eighth situation. What if you're in a marriage now, but it's in a rough patch? You're not separated, but it's just rocky. It's just tense, right? You're just right in the cusp of your liberty and your rights dial getting turned up and your covenant keeping and your duty dial getting turned down. And you're feeling more and more like you want liberty and rights and less and less like you want duty and covenant keeping. You know? Well, my first recommendation to you I have from Paul, have more sex, (laughs) unless you're praying. Paul says you're to have sex unless you're praying. That's the covenantal marriage. Okay, I'm just saying that's what he says. So more sex and unless you're praying. Sex and prayer, that is my recipe for helping your marriage. See, I told you it'd be rough having my mom here. (laughs) It's scriptural, okay? But seriously, got to lighten the mute a little bit. Seriously, that's what's intended for the covenantal relationship. It's intended to be a full... You're giving yourself body and soul to the other person. It's meant to be a relationship that is one flesh. It's meant to be a relationship that is perfectly transparent, perfectly intimate, a perfect reflection of love. That's what God intends for marriage. 
And Paul says, don't deny yourselves to each other. Don't deny yourselves that intimacy. Don't deny yourselves that love. Unless you're praying. And then get right back to not denying. Because that's what God intends. So if you're in a marriage and you're in a rough spot, sounds funny, but I'm serious. Sex and prayer. Um, But beyond that, don't consider divorce if the other will stay with you. Divorce is the atomic bomb of marriages. You don't even mention it. You don't think about it. You don't break covenant. That's not an option. The only option in these rough patches is to focus on the covenant and covenant keeping and the duty to the covenant. That you remember that you said at one point that I am going to keep my relationship and my love for you and my passion for you alive even if you don't on your part. Because that's what God calls us to be. That's the heart that God gives us. He gives us a new heart. He gives us his heart. And God's heart is a covenantal heart. Because, man, our liberty and our rights, they wind up all the time, don't they? And we go and do our own thing, and, you know, then we come back as Graham prayed. You know, we think we got it right, and our flesh gets in the way and all that stuff. And then when we turn back to God, God's right there waiting for us. Because even if we're faithless, God will be found faithful. God's relationship with us is covenantal. He expects our relationships with each other to be covenantal. His relationship with us is self-sacrificial. His son died, shed his own blood died so that we could have this relationship. And so he expects that covenantal relationship from us for each other, that we would sacrifice and give our lives to each other in order to keep covenant. There is nothing that will break our covenant with God. And he intends there is nothing that will break our covenant with each other in marriage. So what are we to do then as Christians? Keep covenant. Just keep covenant. It's a picture of the covenantal relationship as I just described that God has with us. It's a picture of the covenantal relationship that Christ has with the church and that we're to have with each other. Christ did not focus on his rights. He set aside his rights in order to lay himself out for us. He laid down his life in submission to our need for a savior. He did everything that was required by both the law and love to secure his relationship with us. And that's what marriage is. It's a covenant. It's everything that's required by both law and love to secure the relationship. And if we do that in our marriage, Satan has no foothold. There is no discord. There is no anger. There is no disunity. There is no separation. Satan can't do anything against covenantal relationships. They are his kryptonite in relationships. So if your choices have put you in a complicated situation, and that's what Paul's dealing with, and that's what we're all dealing with, the complications to the ideal. And if your choices have put you in a complicated situation, Paul says, remain as you are and make the effort on your part to make it a covenantal relationship that endures. And make sure it's a relationship that reflects the peace that God has called us to. So what does this mean for us as a church? It means that we do the work up front before marriage, and it means that we provide special care for people in marriages, and it means that we work and act rightly towards preserving our marriages before they break, and we work and act towards reconciling marriages after they break, or entering into right covenantal relationships if we've been abandoned from other covenantal relationships. It just means we do marriage right, because it's a foundation stone. It's a foundation stone to the church. It's what God intended. And the aim of scripture and the desire of God and the best thing for us in the world is that our marriages would be strong. They would be strong covenant relationships that reflect as clearly as possible the selfless love that Jesus showed to lay down his rights and privileges to save us 
we lay down our rights and privileges to serve our spouse. Now, the neat thing is, this today happens to be communion. And so we get to enter into this communion, being able to take a little bit of time to just think and reflect and our relate about this covenantal relationship that God has with us. And we do communion as Christians to remember that. It's a special time as a church family where we get to just remember this covenantal relationship that God is always there waiting, desiring to pour himself out for us if we will approach him. And he gives that to us. And so we're going to enter into communion now and I'll have uh, my helpers come. Bill can come and help and Graham. And uh, we're just going to take um, just a second uh, as we sort of transition from that thought on marriage and covenant and all the complicated relationships. I mean, I knew when I was preparing this and I knew as I was preaching it, stuff's popping up all over, right? Either about yourself or people you know. And so what I want to do right now is I just want to take like 30 seconds so that we can just prepare our hearts uh, to take communion and so that we can confess what we need to confess so that we can hand over to God the burdens that we know he doesn't want us to carry, uh, but that we can give to him those burdens and set our hearts right for communion and set our, our path straight for the days ahead in terms of our relationship with God and our covenantal relationships with each other. Let's just take 30 seconds and pray about that.